You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. We continue now in our worship, like going to God's Word. Really want to prepare our hearts just to hear what God has to say, because when we open up the Bible, uh, we're hearing from God. We are told that this is His holy and inspired and inerrant scripture. Uh, It's good for us. It's good for our teaching, our correction, our instruction in the Lord so that we can be equipped uh, for faithfulness in God's work. We're going to be in chapter 8 today. Uh, It's it's 13 verses, actually the whole chapter. We're just going to read the whole chapter and uh, let's go to God's word. Chapter 8, Hebrews chapter 8. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it's necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect a tent, He was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and I'll write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is God's word. We really come to an amazing amazing portion of our Hebrews study. And in some ways, it's a lot more of the same, uh, but in other ways, it's very different from what we've been seeing up to this point. We've finished seven chapters. We're now in chapter eight. The theme is the same. Uh, The theme of Hebrews is an easy one. We've been talking about it for several weeks, that Jesus is greater than everything and everyone for all times. Every week, we've been really taking up an argument from scripture of how Jesus is greater He's greater than all things. The early church had become enamored with so many earthly things, so many things that they were enamored by. And the writer of Hebrews is showing how Jesus is greater than all of that. They were enamored with the ministry of angels. And the author says, Jesus is greater than the ministry of the angels. They relied on the ministry of the prophets. And the author says, Jesus is the greater prophet. They looked to Moses and his ministry And we see Jesus is greater than them. We look to Joshua and his leadership of God's people into the promised land. Jesus is greater. They look to Abraham, Father Abraham. Jesus is greater than him. 
The author brings a new, new section talking about the priesthood. And Hebrew says he's greater. He's the greater high priest who mediates for us. Last week, we met our friend Melchizedek, right? Jesus is greater than him. So in many ways, we're just going down this list throughout the book of Hebrews and just taking one thing at a time that we see that is of great benefit to us, that we become in love with and enamored by, and we see Jesus is greater than all of that. Everything that we can see and know, all created things, Jesus is greater. But this chapter feels different. There's something a little different in here. It's almost as if the, res- the author is responding to an anticipated question. After spending a long time talking about how Jesus is greater than so much, he's anticipating this question. So what? Okay, so Jesus is better than all of those things. So what? What impact does that have on my life? So Jesus is greater than Moses and the angels and the prophets and Joshua and Abraham. He's greater than all the priests that we have had. That's, in, that's neat information, but, but so what? Now the author then starts out in verse one and says, I'll tell you so what. <laughs> I'll tell you. Now here's the point of why I've been telling you all of this. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. Let me tell you why. And we find that answer smack dab in the middle of these 13 verses, right at verse seven. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. He's talking about the covenant, the relationship with God, the way that you and I become in good standing with God, a good relationship with God, where you and I are accepted, where we are at peace with God. And he's saying, I'll tell you why this is important because if all of that worked, we wouldn't need Jesus. Here's the dilemma. Here's the conflict that is confronted here in chapter eight. Here is the answer to why all of this matters for you and I. If you and I had everything that we need on this earth, if we had everything that we needed for peace to live out the purpose of our lives, to be right with God, to find satisfaction and joy in this life and in the next, if all of that could be found in our self-will and through our obedience and in created things, then Jesus didn't need to come. But the fact that he did come to die on the cross, to be buried, to raise again, and to ascend on high, because all of that is true, it means everything. We need him. We cannot be made right with God apart from his work. He did come to earth and nothing in the world or nothing in us is capable of saving us. We don't need God's help. We need his ultimate rescue. So someone greater had to come because what we have is not enough. Someone greater had to come, that someone is Jesus. And he's greater than everyone and everything for all times. This is what our passage continues to show us with a new focus, focusing just on two things for us this morning. We see the reality of the present ministry of Christ, and then we're going to finish up with the greater promises of the new covenant. Announcements took so long, so I cut off one point. We just got two today, okay? (laughs) The reality of the present ministry of Christ. Chapter 8 really opens up our focus to imagine some really news about the present ministry of Jesus. You know, why does this matter that he's greater than all things? And we are to change our focus from looking at earthly things and seeing Christ in heaven, ascended on high, seated at the right hand 
of God in majesty and authority and power. It causes us to imagine the reality of so many things that we've been looking at. And here is just like a really quick overview if you've missed the first seven chapters. Wouldn't it be nice if your sins were forgiven? Wouldn't it be nice to approach God and know that he's not angry with you, but that he receives you in joy? Wouldn't it be nice to know that every time you sinned, you didn't need to go through this process of making amends for your sins, but you can know that your sins are covered and forgiven? Wouldn't it be nice to know that there could be a once and for all declaration of your innocence and forgiveness before God, your past sins, your present struggles, your future sins. Wouldn't it be nice to cease from your striving to always feel that you have to earn God's favor? Wouldn't it be nice instead of defending yourself before God, always pretending, always performing before him, always trying to manipulate blessings from him, wouldn't it be nice if you had an advocate that approached God on your behalf to give you all the blessings at his disposal? Wouldn't it be nice if someone paid your moral debt for you so that you were morally not bankrupt, but morally righteous? That's what we have in Jesus. And that's where we've been is comparing Jesus to all of these things, all of these other things. It was a pursuit of trying to find our peace with God and joy and our comfort in this life and and knowing that we are accepted by God and don't have his judgment over our heads to the hope of the future. Wouldn't it be nice? And then he says, you have this. He says, we have such a high priest. It's exactly what we have in Jesus. This is what we have in the present ministry of Christ. We have a high priest, this is what he says, we have a high priest like one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. The author wants us to see Jesus seated. There was a lot of things in the temple. There was very detailed instruction for Moses for how to construct this tent in the wilderness and for the builders of the temple later on for how to build it. It had a lot of things, but one thing it didn't have. It didn't have any place to sit. Because the priest was one that came in and had to work. He had to offer sacrifices for himself and his own sins and the sins of the people. He was interceding for the people of God. He was a mediator of God's blessing from God to the people and from the people, their prayers to God. And so he had a lot of work to do. He was working constantly and he had to come back every single year during the day of atonement to do this work. He couldn't come into the temple and sit down because work had to be done. There weren't any seats. And now we are see Jesus as our high priest and his position is one of sitting down. Why? Because the work is done. It is a visible representation of his cry on the cross that said, it is finished. The work for our atonement, the forgiveness of our sins, the payment of our debt, to our adoption into the family of God, that work is completed. The work of the earthly priest was, was never completed. To see Jesus seated is to give this physical representation that he has done all the work that we need to be with God in an intimate relationship, a bond of peace marked by joy, forgiveness, affection, and love, and steadfast faithfulness forever. Through a single act, a single sacrificial act, that's what Jesus did on the cross not having to return every single year to make atonement for our sins, but through a single act on the cross, once and for all, we have this high priest who is seated. 
We also have a high priest, like one who is at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. We are meant to see that he is a, a priest and a king. He is one who reigns over us. He is sovereign. He defends us. He protects us. He punishes our enemies. He brings them to justice. He is a king who rules over his people. We learned last week that through the, the, the Levitical law, no one could be both priest and king. It was too much of a consolidation of power. And we were shown of this like mysterious shadowy figure, Melchizedek, that he was both priest and king. And we were told that the, the Messiah who would come would be like that. Jesus is seen here as a, a seated priest who reigns over his people. He is the priest and he is king. It means that Jesus is the only one in whom perfect peace and righteousness can be found. Jesus is the only one in whom can be found perfect truth and perfect peace and perfect care, perfect protection, perfect loyalty, perfect faithfulness, perfect assurance and affection. Jesus entered into heaven, seated at, sits at the throne of the right hand of God in majesty on high for our blessing. For our blessing, we are told he is the forerunner to open heaven for us. And because he has entered into heaven, he has opened a way for you and I to be with him again one day. We're told that since Jesus has passed through the heavens and sits in authority and power, we can have, as we were told earlier in this, in this letter, confidence to draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. The present ministry of Christ is that he has entered into heaven as our high priest, perfect high priest, who loves us, ministers to us, and rules over us so that we can come to him when we need help. Always available. He does not know how to be absent from his people. He does not know how to turn a deaf ear to the cries of his people. We have a high priest like one who is a minister in holy places, the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. You know, during the time of Moses, there was an earthly tabernacle, right? They were in the wilderness, in the desert, and a tent was built to be an expression of the reality of God's presence among his people. And at the time of the writing of this scripture, there was also another tabernacle, a temple, in Jerusalem for the same purpose, to be an expression of the reality of God's presence among his people. And at times, God's people, if you read the Old Testament and know of their history, they were scattered from Jerusalem. They were scattered from a place of God's presence. They were through war and, and, and other <clears throat> hindrances. They were exiled and cast out from Jerusalem and could not be in a place of worship near to God. And that's why we see so often in the Psalms this desire to return to the temple and praise, to be where God is, to be in his presence, because there is where we find intimacy, relationship, presence. That's where we find his peace. And there's a point where they couldn't do that. To say that Christ serves in the true tent is not to say that the temple worship was false. It is to say it's not true versus false, it is an issue of temporary versus permanent. Wherever you go, wherever life takes you, whatever challenges you face, you are never apart from God. 
in Jesus Christ. You are never apart from his presence through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You don't have to go to a place in order to meet God, to be comforted by him. He is in us. He has made our bodies his temple. This is the present ministry of Christ. This is why the the temple and thinking about this place of real presence of God is so powerful when we are told then we become the dwelling place of God. Something so real, something so wonderful and beautiful about that. I'm reminded of the movie uh, National Treasure. I realize I, I think I've shared a movie thing like the last four weeks. I don't know. Tomorrow, next week will probably be five weeks. So that's just the way it is. So National Treasure, right? He's a treasure hunter looking for like the most valuable treasure that the world has ever seen. Spends his whole life searching for it from the time he's a young boy, now a grown man. Every clue just leads to another clue, which needs, leads to another clue, which leads to another clue. And there is this despair that kind of sits in. And the question is, is it just about clues? Are we ever going to get the real thing? And there's this temptation to kind of give up. It's just clues. We're just told clues and shadows and images and foretastes of what's to come. Is we ever going to actually take that treasure and, and realize that once and for all? And there was a time all through the history of God's people where everything was a clue pointing to the real treasure, pointing to the Christ that would come. And you have to imagine that there was despair that set into the hearts of God's people that felt, is this just another clue? Are we ever going to find that treasure that really brings satisfaction? And the writer of Hebrews says, the treasure is yours in Jesus. And this is not another clue, but in fact, everything we've been told throughout the whole history of God's people has been a clue to point us to Jesus. The temple, the sacrifices, the leaders, the characters, the warriors, the judges, the kings, the princes, everything was meant to show us and lead us to the sign of Christ and the present ministry of Christ in our lives. Jesus has come and there are no more clues. The treasure has been found. Jesus' work is done. He sits on the throne. He rules over us and in us so that his kingdom will be established. And many Christians continue to feel afraid because of their weaknesses. Many Christians continue to feel ashamed because of their failures. Awareness of their guilt and uncertainty for tomorrow, troubled over life's circumstances and wondering, are are we gonna be okay? Am I going to be okay? What will tomorrow bring? Do you fear, fear those things? We are meant to look to Jesus then, who is seated in heaven at the right hand of God in majesty on high, who is our treasure and has made his dwelling place in us. He died for our sins. He extends his power to us to ensure that he will come again and be with us. He promises to be faithful that he will return to us. And the struggles that we face today are temporary and we don't have to wait for anything else but his return. We have his treasure. And we're meant to take great comfort in this present ministry of Christ. That's why there's all this talk about him being our priest and our high priest and our great king over us. It's not for a clue to lead us into something in the future. It's to know that he is with us now and everything we've been waiting for is here. 
And these, this comfort of his ministry is anchored in this, the greater promises described in our passages, in our passage, this greater promise that we have, that you and I live in today. Let's look at these greater promises of the, the new covenant, the covenant we've mentioned before many times. The covenant is the way that God relates to his people. A covenant is just, a, it's a relational bond. God is a holy God and we are sinful and rebellious and God desires relationship with us, but God cannot associate with sin and have part in sin. And so he creates a, an agreement, a way to have relationship with his people that was filled with, with um requirements of obedience. And if those obedience, if those requirements and laws were broken, then curses would come on his people. And if they were upheld, then blessings would come on his people. And this section is a direct quote from the prophet Jeremiah recorded in chapter 31. Jeremiah 31, right? A wonderful chapter. Many of you know it. We know it points us to Jesus. It speaks of a new way that you and I will be made right with God. A new way that you and I will relate to God in relationship with him. There was something wrong with the old covenant law. The law itself wasn't wrong. The law was actually perfect. The law was holy. The law was righteous. The law was beautiful and wonderful. The law was an invitation into joy. The promises of the old covenant promised blessing that would come to those who obeyed God's commands. And punishment would come to those who disobeyed the law. The law was good, but it was flawed. It was good at exposing our need for help. It was good at exposing our sin. It was very bad at saving us. It couldn't forgive our sins. The law couldn't forgive our sins once we broke it. It couldn't bring us into a right relationship with God. It could only bring knowledge of our failures. How would you like that? How would you like something that only brought knowledge of your weakness, but that thing could not help you in feeling better about yourself or for rescuing you? This, you would feel despair, and that is what the law intends to do. It is intends to show us the holiness of God and what it looks like to be in a relationship with him that honors him. And in acknowledgement of our failure to keep that law, we are meant to see that we need rescue. Verse nine tells us why the old covenant law was flawed because people rebelled against God and did not obey his commands. The problem was not the law. The problem was God's people that they disobeyed and the law could not save them. If you read the Old Testament, you'll find a rich history of what? You know, a lot of people will think that, that they finally found God, right? Sometimes people will explain their conversions about pursuing God and running after God and finally God giving in and finding God. If you look around the Old Testament and how God relates to his people, you will see story after story after story of people running in the opposite direction of God and God running after his people capturing them by his promise and his blessing, redeeming them by his love. All throughout the Old Testament story, we see a rich history of God inviting people into a life of love with him and them saying, we don't really wanna do that. We wanna do our own thing. God inviting them into joy through his good law and them taking matters into their own hands. And the chilling cause and effect of this kind of life, this kind of sin is so well displayed in verse nine. And it says this, for they did not continue in my covenant. They didn't abide by the relationship agreement that we had. And so I showed them no concern for them, declares the Lord. 
They rebelled against me. They wanted autonomy. They wanted to do their things their own way. They pursued death instead of life. And so I concerned, I had no concern for them. This is what happens when people reject God. Now, listen carefully to my, the tense that I used because it's intentional. This is what happens when people reject God. And I'm not saying this is what happened a long time ago when people reject God. It's what happens still. When we reject God, we have no hope. The law is a mirror. The law shows us our need. It shows us the kind of life that is pleasing to God. It is a measure that shows us what kind of life is holy and pleasing to him. The, the law is a guide. It shows us the ultimate purpose, which is to know Jesus. When people reject God in the Old Testament, God turned his back on them. When you and I reject God today, he turns his back on us. The law is bad. The law is really good for showing us what we need, but it's very bad for finding salvation. It's very bad for finding acceptance and favor. It's very bad for finding peace. There needs to be an entirely different way. One of the most fundamental mistakes a person can make is to look to rules to find life. We're all trying to do this though. We're all trying to find our salvation. It doesn't have to be in the law of God. Sometimes it can be through other things. Or we're, we're all trying to find salvation. We're trying to find a sense of what makes us truly feel that we matter and that we're satisfied, fulfilled and safe and secure and accepted and loved and valuable and good enough. What are those things for you? What makes you feel that you are good enough and that you matter to God and to others? We can define it in different ways. Our law could be, it might not be God's law. It could be something else. It can be eternal life. It could be success in business. It could be success in a relationship. It could be a beautiful home or a nice car or good fashion or financial stability or a, a, a really uh, welcoming and, and, and friendly demeanor. It could be a great sense of humor or loved and adored by others. It could be politics or national identity. What is it, the thing that makes you feel like you're in the right place with God? None of those can truly deliver. And the author of Hebrews is saying, if you put your ultimate energy into these things, you work very hard, you will get nowhere. And it will have all been for nothing. And that's when this wonderful news comes in and the author of Hebrews says, but Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, a new way of relating to God, a new way that we find our peace with God with better promises Sounds great, doesn't it? Sounds great. There's better promises. What are those promises based upon? Look at verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. God promises not to just give us information for how to live. He promises to write his law on our hearts. It is no longer this external thing that we observe and obey. It is an internal transformation in our life. It is describing the internal work that God does in us through the Holy Spirit. Begins with our minds, receiving information and good news. It travels and progresses to our hearts. It changes our emotions. It changes our ambitions. It changes our will. It changes our affections for what we love and what we hate. 
We hear of God's word and we see his love poured out for us on the cross through Jesus Christ. He transforms us from the inside out. He convicts our hearts over our sin. When we feel guilt over our sin and conviction of our sin and that we need rescue, this is, this is the work of God writing his law on our hearts. He points us to the only hope when we know that we need rescue in Jesus, when we know that we are incapable of saving ourselves and God is our only hope. This is the work of God writing his law on our hearts. This is important to see that both the Old Testament and the New Testament both affirm the law of God, that they both value obedience through the law of God. It wasn't the Old Testament says obey God's law, the New Testament say you don't have to obey God's law anymore. That's not true. They both value obedience to the law of God, but the difference is how we obey. Before it was this external observance of the commands of God and making sacrifice for our sins every single time there was disobedience. And the promise here is the gift of faith that we are justified by grace through faith in Christ in his work for us, his perfect obedience to obey the law. And now he is working in us a new heart to obey him. The motivation is different. We do not obey God in order to be loved by him. We are loved by him. We are given his Holy Spirit, our, his laws and truths and goodness written on our hearts so that we can now honor God through our life, through our attitudes, through our affections, through our decisions. Not in order to earn his approval, but because we already have it. Think of it in this way. God gives his people the law to obey and they did not have the ability, the ability to receive it or to keep it or live up to its demands and it became for them a curse. And this is why their relationship with God broke down in every way. But in the new covenant, God makes provision for these weaknesses, provision for these failures, provision for this curse. We are told that Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. Jesus is born into our humanity without sin, but took upon himself the demands of the law. So being born as a human, he now is initiated into those requirements of the law that, that all of us are initiated into through our birth. Obey the law or die. Jesus obeyed the law and still died for us to rescue us. He receives it. He keeps it. He lives up to its demands. But that's not all he takes. He takes our guilt upon the cross, the guilt of God's people. When he dies, he pays the penalty for our sins. The law of God in the old covenant was written on tablets of stone. And we are told now that the law of God is written on the tablets of our heart. Do this and you will live, the Old Testament covenant said. And we are told through faith that the words of life are written on our hearts. Every Christian has a different story of conversion, but they all have one thing in common, a point of putting their faith and trust in resting in what Jesus has done for them. A recognition of their failure to keep God's law, a crying out for his mercy, a trust in what Jesus has done perfectly for us. He is the only one who has lived up to God's commands in his law. Look at verse 11 and 12 again. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, 
Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful towards their iniquities. I'll remember their sins no more. God promises that he will be faithful to us. We will know God. We will know his mercy. We will know what it's like to have our sins forgiven, not because we've been faithful, but because he has shown us grace. This is a great picture of intimacy, relationship with God. And it is the default posture of the human heart to turn to the law to make us right with God. Our heart is defaulted when we are feeling guilty and insecure and afraid to look at what we should do to be made better. It is a default of the human heart to seek God's approval and affection through law keeping. It's to find salvation through the shoulds and shouldn'ts of our life. I should be better. I should obey more. I should master my sin. I should be a better Christian. I should be a better wife. I should be a better husband. I should be a better father. I should be a better. I shouldn't do this. I shouldn't do that. I really shouldn't have said that. I don't tell people what I do for a living anymore when I golf. Because <laughs> they always say, you know, I like to tell them we're on hole 10 after a day of cursing and drinking on their part. I really shouldn't have done that. No, you shouldn't have. But that doesn't matter. That's not going to save you if you didn't. Now I just don't golf anymore because I'm not very good. <clears throat> Are you a Christian today because you sorted out your life or because you put your faith in Jesus who loves you and gave himself for you? What makes you a Christian? God promised that he will work faithfulness in you. God promises he will give you a heart to obey him. He promises that he'll give you a heart to glorify him. That means that we can come to God and say, God, I am not faithful. <laughs> I do not do as I ought to do, as I should do. I do the things that I shouldn't do. I am not trustworthy. I am not obedient. I am not perfect. And I have a, a, a lifetime of evidence that tells me and everyone around me who knows me that I am not worthy, but I trust in Jesus who succeeded where I failed and where I continue to fail every single day, who died the death I deserve to die, who rose again to give me life. We don't earn God's love. We don't deserve God's love, but love is exactly what God pours into our hearts. It is an act of his abundant grace and mercy. And the great promise is this, I will be their God and they will be my people. Isn't that wonderful? We will have this relationship that is unceasing, that is unending. There is no barrier between us and God through Jesus Christ. We have complete and total and continuous access to his heart, to his ear, to his mind. He tells us who he is and what he loves. And he says, one day, you will know me as much as I know you. Wow. That's, he knows us intimately. He knows all of our faults and failures. He knows us. He created us and we will know him. I want to finish like this. Have you ever read the Bible and didn't receive the words of God just as abstract ideas, but words that became realities to your heart that transformed the way you felt, the way you saw the world, the way you saw yourself in God's eyes? Have you ever come to the words of God and just felt ministered to by them in your heart? 
where even life was hard, but you found rest in these promises, what you are experiencing is this intimacy of relationship. This intimacy that comes from God dwelling in us and writing his law on our hearts, not just on our heads. It, this transformation doesn't come through just a, a, a believing in information or transferring information. It comes from an act of God's mercy to soften our hearts to hear him. And he speaks to us through his word. And we come to his word knowing that he is, he is desiring communion with us. He is desiring intimacy with us. And we come to his words and we feel ministered. Have you ever had a sense that you were in a real relationship with God? Or did it always just feel like, a, like he was a landlord or something? That you, that you failed to pay rent on time and now he's mad at you. You didn't, you, didn't, you didn't live up to the lease agreement and now you just have to hide it somehow. Do you feel like you're in a real relationship or is it just someone you just try to do your best to obey all the time? It's the old covenant. What we have in Christ, what we have in the new covenant promise. Intimacy is the mark of the true work of God in our hearts. If God is this personal, it's a wonderful invitation for you today. God is this personal, it will transform you from the inside out. It'll change everything about your life, a radical transformation of everything you feel and fear and hope in, everything that you've ever done that you feel guilty about and everything that you will do in the future, it will change everything. The invitation is to see our faults and weaknesses and rebellion in our own heart, to see our inability to fix any of that mess, but to see the perfect, the greater, the merciful work of Christ for us on our behalf. Take that invitation. Take that joy.